This is the Bible Book Club. And we're in Deuteronomy. Welcome Welcome to to the club. In episode two of Deuteronomy, Moses continued his speech to the Israelites, and he had two major points about God that he wanted the Israelites to remember, what God can do for them and what God can do with them. And to prove his points, he used historical evidence. Moses reminded the Israelites that God provided them safe passage through Edom, Moab, and Ammon, because he didn't want them to fight with their relatives. And Moses reminded the Israelites that with God, they would have victory over the enemies that they would have to fight. In both cases, all the Israelites have to do is obey God. And it's the same with you and me. (laughs) God will remind you all the great things he's done in your life. And all we have to do is obey. And when we obey, it leads to blessing and victory. All right. With all the remembering that they did in chapters one through three complete, Moses intensifies his message. Chapter four is the climax and conclusion of Moses's first sermon in Deuteronomy. Remember, there's three of them. Now, in this chapter, there is a change in tone and a rise in urgency. Moses is going to move from reminding the Israelites about all God did for them and with them to demanding they respond. Moses is going to exhort them, press them, urge them, and convince them to take action. God has given them all the proof they need to be devoted to him, and now it's up to them. All right, before we jump into chapter four, we're going to do a keyword study because this word is used a lot, and it really should change the meaning of this entire chapter for you. So we're going to dig into actually a couple little words in this chapter. All right, the key word we're going to study is shamir. It's S-H-A-M-A-R. It's a Hebrew word. Now, often the words used thousands of years ago do not adequately translate to modern English. And that's the case with this word. Moses used this word often and, and really often. In fact, 148 times in the five books of the Torah. That's a lot. And half of those are in this book of Deuteronomy. Of the 73 times Moses is going to use the word shomer in Deuteronomy, six of the uses are in this chapter four. So understanding the meaning of the word shomer adds weight to what Moses is saying. Let me explain. This is a primitive root word, meaning it is a word belonging to the first age, where they really used words as kind of pictures of things. So when Heather reads chapter four, she will read Shamir translated as either the word to keep or the words be careful, which really seems to us like two different things. Because this is a primitive root word, to Moses and the Israelites, the word evoked an image. The word was created to describe something in their world. Now, Moses was a shepherd for 40 years before becoming the Israelite leader. And of course, this word is a word used by shepherds. That's why he's going to use it so much. The Israelites as a people were shepherds dating all the way back to Abraham. Remember, Abraham had a lot of herds. As shepherds, their livelihood and their future prosperity depended on protecting the sheep. It was the whole point of their existence. 
To them, the word shamir represented a daily shepherding ritual of great importance. The image described by the Hebrew word shamir is of a sheepfold. When a shepherd was out in the wilderness with his flock, he would gather thorn bushes to erect a corral to place his flock in every night. The thorns from the brush would discourage predators on the outside and thereby protect and guard the sheep from harm. It also kept the sheep in and they didn't wander. Shamir to this shepherding nation meant to put a hedge of thorns around something to protect it from certain death. A lot bigger meaning than to keep or just be careful. Over time, the word Shamir evolved in meaning from hedge about with thorns, to keep watch over or guard, to protect, to what we will read today, to keep or be careful of. The primitive meaning to Moses and the Israelites was much stronger than just keeping something or being careful about it. Keeping the sheep was not nearly as mindful as building a hedge of thorns around them. To the Israelites, the word evoked a precious guarding that meant life or death for them, for without their sheep, their livelihood was lost. Moses uses this strong word six times because Moses wanted the Israelites to see what he was saying as life or death for them. By using the word shamir, Moses was tying their relationship to God with their life and the future lives of their children. And he's going to say that twice too. This is for your children. Teach this to your children. He's trying to drill it into their head. You've got to listen to me. This is life or death. The word picture of Shamir was a perfect fit because in this chapter, God clearly lays out that the land and its provision was directly tied to their relationship with him, just as protecting the sheep was clearly tied to their future livelihood. Keep the shepherd's image of this word wherever you are in the future in the Old Testament, and it will add a new depth to your understanding because it's used a lot. For example, last season in number six, we read the Aaronic blessing, which many churches today use as a benediction. It was this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Now, you know that where it says bless you and keep you, it really means may the Lord bless you and put a hedge of thorns around you so the enemy cannot touch you and so that you cannot stray and become lost. It just is more impactful. I will take a thorny hedge of God's protection over keeping me any chance I can get. All right, moving on to chapter four. There are four things that Moses wants the Israelites to put a hedge of thorns around. The first is God's commandments. The second is their calling. The third is their covenantal relationship with him. And the fourth is their confidence that he is the Lord, their God. All right, here we go with the first one. Put a hedge of thorns around God's commandments. And it's an interesting picture to this hedge of thorns, because like you said, it's to protect them from predators from the outside. But it also would really hurt if you try to like bump up against that thing. Correct. So it's it's kind of like the consequence that we get sometimes, unfortunately. 
unfortunately, when we sin, and that doesn't feel so good. And it it also is that picture of keeping them in. They won't become lost sheep if they put this hedge of thorns around themselves and obey the commandments. The problem is a lot of times my consequence comes later, and if it would if it came before I had to have the consequence, like. I bump up against this hedge of thorns and it really hurts. I might stay inside that little hedge. Exactly. All right. Chapter four. Now, Israel, hear the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Okay. So keep the commands. Why do they need to guard, put a hedge of thorns around the commands of the Lord? If they guard the commands, then they will get to live in the promised land. That's what he just said there. This is the heart of the covenant. God will provide if they will obey. There is also a little aside here because the commands given are all they need. They do not need to add to it or subtract from them. To have that promised land, all they have to obey is exactly what's given. No additions or subtractions, just keep it as they are. So what will happen if they don't put that hedge of protection around the commands? Verse three, you saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal Peor. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. Moses reminds them what will happen if they do not guard the commandments. In season four, episode 13, Numbers 25, the men of Israel were seduced by women priestesses from Moab. The Israelites broke the commandments by worshiping the Moabite god, Baal of Peor. And God caused a plague and 24,000 Israelites died. So it's literally that crucial. They are going to die or suffer if they don't do this. Moses makes it clear with this example. If they do not put a hedge of protection around the commandments, they will be destroyed. Verse five, see, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as them to have their gods near them the way the Lord God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? So Heather read, observe them carefully. Be careful, he's saying, to guard God's commands so you may lead others to me because you will be my example to the nation's that they may know that I am the true God. This is what Moses is telling them. God had a plan that he laid out in the Torah. By obeying the plan, the Israelites would demonstrate God's greatness to the nations. This would fulfill the promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12, that all peoples on earth would be blessed through Abraham. It wasn't just for their own prosperity in the promised land that they were to protect the commandments. It was also for the whole world to see. And when the world saw that Israel's God was different, he was real, and he was in a real relationship with them, then they would be drawn to the one true God 
and all the nations would be blessed because of them. And I think that's the same today, too. We don't need to hit anybody over the head with the gospel of Jesus. We just need to live in such a way that they're like, hey, what's going on over there? I want to do some of that. Whatever they got, I want some. Well, that's exactly what Paul's going to tell us. So the nation of Israel was to be a letter from God to the world written not in ink or in stone tablets, but with the Spirit of God, and not just on tablets of stone, but on the hearts of people. To the people of Israel, keeping the covenant was not to be strictly about obedience. The individual was to have an attitude of guarding the covenant as a shepherd lovingly guards his flock. Their care and concern for the commandments would be a testimony to the world of their loving relationship with God. Now, note this. Paul carries this theme into the New Testament. We too are to be a letter, a love letter from Christ to the world, an example that testifies to God. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 3, you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. I love that, that if we love the Lord and follow him, we are a love letter from him to others. We are, God is loving others to himself through us. It's so cool. Okay, the second thing there to put a hedge of thorns around is their calling. Verse nine, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, when he said to me, assemble the people before me, hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Okay, so Heather read in the beginning, the very first thing, only be careful and watch yourself closely. That's our our thorn, our hedge of thorns. Be careful, he's saying, to protect the memory of how God chose you. God warns Israel to be careful not to forget him, to guard the memory of the words of the one who spoke to them at Mount Sinai. It was there that God entered into a covenant with them. It was there that their relationship was established. In verse 11, Moses draws a parallel between how God called him and how God called Israel. He uses three phrases with the exact words as his own calling from God in Exodus when God spoke to him from the burning bush. Those phrases are at Mount Horeb, which is really Sinai, blazed with fire, and the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. By using the same language to describe Israel's calling, Moses is equating his own calling and how it began to the Israelites calling. Moses's relationship with God began at Mount Sinai, where God spoke from the 
fire. Israel's relationship with God began at Mount Sinai, where God spoke from the fire. This was their beginning. This was when God chose them for a divine relationship. This is where the people got to hear God's voice as he called to them. They must place a hedge of thorns around their calling. They must pass it down to their children. They must remember. Now think about it. When and how and for what purpose did God call you? Place a hedge of thorns around that calling so that you never, ever forget that God has a plan for you. Next, Moses wants them to put a hedge of thorns around their relationship with God. Verse 15, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. Okay, be careful not to abandon God by worshiping idols. Moses starts by stating that God is formless. Therefore, they are not to make any forms to worship. Then Moses systematically lists forms they may be tempted to make to represent God. He bans every form in creation and lists them in the reverse order in which God created them in Genesis. They are not to make idols in the image of people, animals, birds, fish, the sky, the sun, the moon, or the stars. And don't you think he probably said that because they were doing that? Well, he knew they'd be tempted to do. And of course, that includes calves, especially not golden calves, which they had already done. But yes, it was the tendency of the surrounding cultures to worship things in creation rather than the creator. And so he did not want that. They'd already made that mistake by worshiping a golden calf. And so he knew they'd be tempted. And so he eradicates. These are things created by God who is formless. Therefore, don't make them into forms to be worshiped. All right. Continuing in verse 20. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. The Lord was angry with me because of you. And he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. I will die in this land. I will not cross the Jordan, but you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. Be careful not to forget the covenant the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Okay, he's continuing with this hedge of thorns about their relationship with God. And he says, be careful to remember your position in this order God created. You are special. You are different. The Lord chose them out of all creation to be his treasured possession, and he is jealous of his possession. So they have to remember that. He also sounds a little disgruntled at this point. Okay, he's so like, yes. you're the reason. Yes. So don't screw it up this exactly. time. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, he, he, he kind of inserts this other point, but you're not so special that you are immune to consequences. Moses slips in a little frustration about his own situation 
as a reminder that just because they are special doesn't mean that they get to live in a special place if they disobey. And he is the poster child for that. One little slip and you are banned from the promised land. Moses is referring to Exodus 20 when he and Aaron brought water from the rock in anger without attributing the miracle to God. Now, Moses is was just actually, in my opinion, being very human at the time um, because he and so here he blames the people for making him do it in anger. He said, the Lord was angry with me because of you. And I have to agree with him. The Israelites were so frustrating at the time. It's no wonder Moses lost his temper. But the point is, it wasn't honoring to God. And so he he lost that special status he had of being able to see the promised land. And that's why he inserts it here because he wants them to remember, okay, yeah, in the order of creation, you are special and we have a special relationship, but you're not so special that I'm just going to, you know, expect nothing of you. You have to obey. And it wasn't even really them. It was their parents. But he wants them to remember Remember, what will the consequence be. Exactly. Now, the next few verses are a prophecy inserted as a warning with a window of hope in them. Perhaps this is just my kind of inserting myself into figuring out where where Moses's head was when he he went into this next section, and maybe he was still a little bit triggered by that memory of how the Israelites pushed him to anger that resulted in his own disobedience because he's probably thinking in his head, "Man, if they can push me, you know, what are they going to do without me?" Um, perhaps his mind began to wander in worry about them in the future, like how are they, what's going to happen to them after I leave? We just don't know. But Moses knows more than anyone how disobedient and frustrating the Israelites can be. Maybe he pondered all this and asked God if these people would ever make it. Certainly he had made it. How would they make it even without him? Um, And perhaps God gave him this vision. And this is what he saw. Moses sees the future of Israel. Verse 25, after you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, If you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. If you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days, you will return to the Lord, your God and obey him for the Lord, your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. Moses is warning of things to come and he is spot on. Once we leave Deuteronomy, the battle to be faithful to God in the promised land is an overarching theme of the entire Old Testament. And while Israel will fail to be faithful to God, there is hope. For it says, when you are in distress, you will return to God and obey him. 
for God is a merciful God and he will not abandon you. Now, there were Israelites living in exile, we know, who did cry out in distress, who found that faith and who pursued God's word throughout the Old Testament. A great example of what it may have been like to live as an Israelite in the exile is in Psalms. Psalm 119 is considered an ode to the Torah because it is an example of an Israelite much later in Israelites' history proclaiming the story that Moses was telling about the importance of obeying God's commands. Now, 119 is the longest psalm and longer than any other chapter in the entire Bible. So this guy really gets it out there. The author uses eight different words to describe God's word, words like precepts and laws, and he goes on and on. And he uses one of them in almost every single verse, and there are 176 verses. Why was this Israelite so passionate and wordy about the word of God? It is thought that the author may have lived during the exile from the promised land that Moses just warned about. So he was like craving it because it was gone for them. The promise was gone. Um, The poor man knew firsthand the consequences of forsaking the word of God. Everything that Moses said would happen had happened. He must have pondered it a lot for he came up with a complexly patterned psalm so that he would never forget its importance. And again, acrostics and things like that were ways that people used when they created psalms and things so that they could say them, remember them because they, you know, stone tablets were hard to come by, I guess. I don't know. Now, the psalm is in an acrostic pattern with each section beginning with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So each section begins with a letter and then the 22 sections for each letter have eight verses each and each line in the section begins with that letter. So we read it in English and it just sounds very lovely. But for them, it was quite complex. If you need inspiration to love the word of God, consider reading this psalm. It worked for Matthew Henry, the great 18th century Bible commentator. He was introduced to Psalm 119 as a child. His father told him to take one verse of Psalm 119 every morning to meditate on. And he told his children that it will bring you to be in love with all the rest of the scriptures. And perhaps that practice was why Matthew Henry loved the Bible so much that he wrote a complete Bible commentary that is still used by everyone today, volumes long. Now, another person who was inspired by this great psalm, the one that reiterates the importance of putting a hedge of thorns around the word of God, was William Wilberforce, the 19th century British politician who led the movement to abolish the slave trade in the British Empire and who also memorized all 176 verses of Psalm 119. And he would recite it on his daily walk home from Parliament every day in 22 minutes exactly is what it took him to get home. Now, if you are on a journey with us as we podcast through the entire Bible and you don't, you think it's too much to memorize Psalm 119 to develop passion for the Word of God, 
You just want to develop a love for God's word another way, try memorizing just one verse a week. In every podcast episode, we choose one verse that stands out and we post it on the blog. This this episode, the verse is, verse nine, only be careful and watch yourself closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Okay, our final hedge of thorns that God wants them to place is around their confidence in God. I'm going to read it, but now I kind of want to read Psalm 119. I know. Even though I know it would take us 22 minutes and we don't have that kind of time right now. It is. We probably should read it at the end of Deuteronomy when we finish the Torah, because it is a beautiful recap of everything that Moses tells out in the Torah. Okay. Well, back to verse 32. Ask now that the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by the great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. From heaven, he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth, he showed you his great fire and you heard his words from out of the fire. Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land and give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. Acknowledge and take heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands, which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. The Lord is your God. Confidently guard that knowledge, have faith and believe. This is what Moses is drilling into them. The phrase, the Lord your God, here's another key word, is repeated 250 times in Deuteronomy. Compare that to Moses' other four books where he mentions the Lord your God only 65 times. Moses' grand total mentions of this phrase, Lord your God, in all five books is 315 times compared to only 283 times in the entire rest of the Bible. Why? Moses is at the end of his life. He only has so many words to get into print. Why does he repeat the Lord your God 250 times in Deuteronomy? Because Moses knows they will forget that the Lord is their God. They will fail to teach their children and grandchildren. Moses is determined for the Israelites to understand that God is their God and they are his people. Now, aside from his not so discreet methods to brainwash them, that God is their God, Moses goes back to that pivotal, miraculous redemption in Egypt. Moses concludes his sermon by taking them back to the beginning, their redemption, which took place in Egypt. This was the definitive moment in their history when God 
chose them to be his treasured possession, and Moses wants them to never forget it. Now, what is our redeeming moment in history? What do we need to remember and put a hedge of thorns around so that we can have confidence in our God? For us, it must be Jesus's death on the cross. Surely that is when we were redeemed, grafted into the promise, adopted as heirs, and became a treasured possession. Surely God wants us to remember, as he wanted the Israelites to remember, what he did for us and what he can do with us. Surely that is the whole point of the Bible, to understand God and his plan from beginning to end to redeem us. So what are we to put a hedge of thorns around? What are we to guard? What are we to protect? There are four things that Moses wanted the Israelites to protect so that they could live a life of promise in the land that God promised. The first was God's commandments. The second was their calling. The third was their covenantal relationship. And the fourth was their confidence that the Lord is their God. Perhaps we should do the same and put a hedge around these four things. And we too will live a life of promise. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. Club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.